You're listening to the Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com. Welcome back, my friends. Welcome back to the continuation of the Corbett Report podcast. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 16th day of January, 2011. And I'd like to welcome all of the listeners back to the Corbett Report podcast, welcome any new listeners, and encourage all of you, as always, to check into my website, CorbettReport.com, where you can find not only previous episodes of this podcast, but also articles, videos, and interviews created and conducted by myself in the past, and links to websites that inform broadcast, carry, or otherwise support the Corbett Report podcast. Now, I would like to thank everyone for waiting patiently for the return of the podcast during the winter hiatus, and wholeheartedly thank all of you who have put in your orders for the 2009 Video Archive DVD. All of those orders have been received and very, very much appreciated, and I have made my best effort to get all of the videos out promptly. So, At this point, I would imagine that everyone who ordered their DVD in December should either have received their DVD by now or should be receiving it in the next few days. Certainly, if you have not received your DVD yet and you think that you should have by now, please give me an email to let me know. I've already heard back from several of you that you've received your disc, so that feedback is very much appreciated. Also, I've heard back from one person who received his disc but unfortunately had some difficulties playing his disc, so I've sent him a replacement copy, but for anyone else out there who is having any problems of that kind, please let me know right away and we'll get to the bottom of it. At any rate, once again, thank you very much. Without the support of all of you out there, this Corbett Report podcast and my videos and articles and interviews and everything that I do would not be possible. I'd also like to let you know about a couple of media appearances that I'll be making in the next few weeks. Firstly, I believe coming out this week from Red Ice Radio, I recently recorded a conversation with Henrik Palmgren, so I certainly hope that people will tune into that, and you can find that at redicecreations.com, and I believe that's coming out this week, or if not this week, then next. And also, I will be appearing on Open Your Mind Internet Radio from Ireland, and I, we have recorded a conversation for that. It will be airing, I believe, in the first week of February. But at any rate, you can find Open Your Mind Internet Radio at oymireland.com. I'd also like to let the listeners know that our good friends at TruthActionOttawa.com have recently had their YouTube channel upgraded so they can now feature videos that are longer than 15 minutes. Quite a nice upgrade and hopefully one that will be coming to the Corbett Report YouTube channel sometime soon. But at any rate... On the youtube.com slash ANWO613 channel, that's Truth Action Ottawa's channel, and of course the link will be in the documentation section for today's episode, they have taken the liberty of starting to put up entire episodes of the Corbett Report, starting all the way back from episode number one. They've now put up numbers one through number seven, and as they pop up, I'm favoriting each one, so you can find it in the favorites of youtube.com slash Corbett Report, or of course go directly to their channel to watch each one, and I think that's a great way to spread the podcast to even more people, so I hope people will check that out and support that channel. Also, while you're at truthactionottawa.com, you can check, take a look at their petition link, and if you're a Canadian citizen, perhaps you can sign and spread around that petition to get the Canadian Parliament to open an independent inquiry into the events of 9-11. Finally, in terms of housekeeping this week, I want to let everyone know that the new website is up and running and looks like it works okay, except for the fact that it's currently, as I speak, 
being hosted on the new server and the domain is still pointing to the old server and there's some name server registration and other little niggly details that have to be worked out before we can point the domain back at the new server so at any rate, for those who are not technologically inclined, suffice it to say, it is going to be just a matter of hours, hopefully, until the new website redesign is up, unless something goes wrong, and let's cross our fingers that it doesn't. But at any rate, the long-awaited, uh, completely new and redesigned Corbett Report page that looks and uh, feels and acts uh, quite a bit better than the current one should be up and running hopefully even by the time you hear this so please once again stay tuned to corbettreport.com as we continue to grow and expand into the new year and indeed into the new decade at any rate i think it's time for today's sunday update this video is brought to you by the corbett report 2009 video archive buy your copy today at corbettreport.com this is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com with your Sunday update for this 16th day of January 2011. And now, for the real news. In a possible sign of things to come in economically ravaged countries around the globe, mass unemployment in the North African country of Tunisia has led to weeks of protests culminating in the toppling of President Ben Ali, who had ruled over the country for 23 years. This is what popular uprising looks like. After weeks of scenes like these across the country, resulting in dozens dead. It appears to be the end for Tunisia's president after 23 years in power. Early on Saturday morning, police detained several people in central Tunis. During an overnight curfew across the country, there were reports of violence and widespread looting. Some were in shock from the emotion brought on by such a dramatic political development. The demonstration started as a reaction to massive unemployment, price hikes and rampant corruption within the government. Police and security forces responded violently, in some cases firing live rounds into crowds. The protests were particularly surprising given the scarcity of riots in the relatively wealthy, stable Muslim nation in which there is virtually no freedom of the press or right to petition the government over grievances. The man commonly referred to as President Obama issued remarks on the toppling of President Ben Ali last week saying, The United States stands with the entire international community in bearing witness to this brave and determined struggle for the universal rights that we must all uphold. Oddly left out of these flowery remarks, however, was the fact that Secretary of State Clinton had been touting the, quote, positive aspects of our relationship with Tunisia, end quote, as late as last Tuesday, and had stressed that, quote, we are not taking sides in the conflict, end quote. As with many such regimes, the Ben Ali regime was kept in power by the active support of Washington and the international financial oligarchs behind the International Monetary Fund. Just last month, the U.S. Congress passed a budget resolution bestowing the Tunisian dictator with $12 million in security assistance, giving Tunisia the dubious dis distinction of being only one of five regimes, including Egypt, Jordan, Colombia, and Israel, receiving direct taxpayer-funded military aid from the United States. 
Studiously avoided in all discussion of the underlying economic situation, giving rise to the recent protests, however, is the fact that Tunisia has been in the IMF's model country in the region, carefully implementing the International Monetary Fund's structural ad adjustment programs in return for funding which recent diplomatic leaks indicate the US knew was being siphoned off to feed the country's kleptocracy. In 2001, former chief economist of the World Bank Joseph Stiglitz blew the whistle on these policies, revealing how the IMF specifically designed their structural adjustment programs to cause massive inflation and unemployment, specifically to elicit what Stiglitz himself called the IMF riots. The riots are used to cause panic flights of capital and completely bankrupt the regime in order for foreign multinationals to swoop in and buy up the nation's infrastructure at pennies on the dollar. Worryingly, the Tunisian uprising has been given a name, the Jasmine Revolution, that harkens back to the color-coded revolutions of last decade. These revolutions, including the Rose Revolution in Georgia in 2003 that installed serviceable US puppet Saakashvili, and the Orange Revolution in Ukraine that swept the wildly unpopular Russophobe NATOphile Viktor Yushchenko to power, consistently trace their funding back to billionaire New World Order proponent George Soros's Open Society Institute, as well as USAID, Freedom House, and other Western oligopical organizations. Although no direct connection between these organizations and the Jasmine Revolution has so far been suggested, the Soros-supported Electronic Frontier Foundation was drumming up support for Tunisian Twitter and Facebook users as recently as last Tuesday in the face of alleged Tunisian government cyber attacks on its own citizens. At the same time, Anonymous was engaged in a denial-of-service campaign against the Tunisian government. This is reminiscent of the so-called Twitter revolution in 2009 in Iran that was named and supported by Soros-employed blogger Evgeny Morozov, which supposedly indicated spontaneous popular uprising against the Iranian regime, a regime that had long been singled out for destabilization by covert U.S. operations. Former Assistant Treasury Secretary Paul Craig Roberts joined the Corbett Report in 2009 to discuss the suspicious nature of the Iranian Twitter revolution. The Bush administration in May of 2007 uh, signed an order instructing the CIA to destabilize the Iranian regime. This is, I, I give all kinds of sites to this information in my columns. It's not disputed. It was reported on ABC television. It was reported by the famous investigative reporter Seymour Hersh in the New Yorker. It was reported in the London Telegraph. Uh, it's just known, period. I mean, it's, it's not disputed. In fact, the government's proud of it that we, that we um, and, and we even know the sum. The initial sum appropriated was $400 million to uh, purchase protest and, and destabilization and to fund the various uh, Iranian splinter terrorist groups. There are a lot of not a lot, but there are other uh, ethnic uh, groups within Iran opposed to the two main groups, and and uh, there are terrorist groups associated with those, and and they are funded with uh, U.S. government money, <clears throat> and and uh, uh, which includes, of course, the National Endowment for Democracy, which is our main uh, funding mechanism for interfering in foreign in foreign elections. We used it in Serbia, we used it in Georgia and the Ukraine, we used it in the uh, former Soviet uh, Central Asian republics, though not without much, uh, not, not with much uh, success there. 
but with success in Georgia and Ukraine, where we've managed to get uh, puppet governments in, in place. Experts are applauding the Tunisian people for pers persevering in overthrowing a corrupt and dictatorial regime, but warning against the possibility that this will result in the election of another puppet regime that will be pliable to the international financiers who are waiting to loot what remains of the Tunisian economy. In other news, InfoWars reporter Jason Douglas brought attention last week to a recent Department of Homeland Security message encouraging YouTube users to create videos educating the public on the dangers of cybercrime and cyber-terrorism. All Americans have an important role to play in securing cyberspace. So today, I'm asking you to step up, get creative, and enter the Stop, Think, Connect Public Service Announcement Challenge. We're looking for creative videos that will help educate Americans about Internet safety and what we can all do to protect ourselves and our families online. We want videos that inspire Americans to Stop, Think, Connect. In response to the call, the Corbett Report has created its own humble submission, attempting to draw attention to the most pressing aspects of the cyber-terror paradigm. The Department of Homeland Security wants you to stop, think, and connect about the problems of cybersecurity in this increasingly online world. A decade ago, in the wake of the 9-11 attacks, a series of anthrax mailings, widely blamed on Al-Qaeda, cowed Congress into voting for the Patriot Act, the single greatest evisceration of the Bill of Rights in American history. After the passage of the Patriot Act, it was quietly reported that the anthrax had nothing at all to do with Muslim terrorists and in fact came from the U.S. government's own laboratories at Fort Detrick. Now, in this age of cyber-terror, famed Harvard law professor Lawrence Lessig revealed that there was in fact a cyber-equivalent of the Patriot Act already on the shelf and waiting for the Internet 9-11. Um, there's going to be an I-9-11 event, which doesn't mean an Al-Qaeda event. So I, I had dinner once, and Richard Clark was at the, at, this ta at the table, and I said to him, is there an equivalent? Is there a Patriot Act, an I-Patriot Act, just sitting waiting for some substantial event for them to come in and have an excuse for radically changing, uh, radically changing the way the internet works? And he said, of course there is. Given this information, how can responsible citizens not question the motivations and intentions of government agencies who in fact stand to benefit from the very cataclysmic events that they themselves are in the best position to create, foster, or allow? Stop homeland security fear-mongering. Think about cyber false flag terrorism. Connect the dots. This has been a public service announcement from CorbettReport.com. All YouTube users are encouraged and exhorted to similarly create their own videos drawing attention to government-sponsored and sanctioned cyber-terror, pointing out how a spectacular cyber 9-11 style event will in fact only further empower the Homeland Security Department, U.S. Cyber Command, the National Security Agency, Naval Network Warfare Command, and the other players in the burgeoning multi-billion dollar cybersecurity industrial governmental nexus. Now, please go to CorbettReport.com to download episode 169 of the Corbett Report podcast, Argentina and the IMF, where we talk to Argentinian writer and researcher Adrian Salbucci and Canadian economist Michelle Chasadovsky about Argentina's role in the economic new world order. Welcome, my friends, to this 169th episode of the Corbett Report, Argentina and the IMF. If it is one of the premises of the Corporate Report podcast, and it is, that the people perish 
for lack of knowledge, then it logically follows that the only way for us to survive, and hopefully even thrive as a species, is to gain more knowledge. And as interesting as it is to have lofty theoretical and philosophical conversations about the situation in which we find ourselves, and we often do that here on the Corbett Report podcast, it is always necessary to keep those conversations grounded in the real world around us and in the historical examples of the people that have lived, fought tyranny, and sometimes even won in the past in order to have any clue about how to proceed in the future. And so we're going to be looking at Argentina and the Argentinian people today, both as an example of the fiercely independent fighting spirit that can help people get through even the worst of times, and also as a warning about what is very likely in the very near future for many of the people in the industrialized so-called first world that is finding itself more and more indebted and enslaved to a private banking elite. But rather than hearing about Argentina from this Canadian, why don't we start by getting a grip on Argentina and its position in the economic New World Order from an actual Argentinian? And we're going to be listening to an interview that I conducted last month, just before, just after we went on hiatus, with Adrian Salbucci, a researcher, essayist, and lecturer, and an Argentinian who grew up and was educated in New York, but has lived most of his life in Argentina. He's an extremely interesting man who has quite a large YouTube following, and he has posted quite a number of YouTube videos, both in Spanish and in English, that really go into great length of breaking down the New World Order in general, and also his ideas for a second Argentinian Republic. A very interesting and exciting idea, an example of someone who is taking the initiative to get out there and trying to work out ways in which we can combat this system of enslavement that we're seeing, unfortunately, develop around us. So I want to highlight the works of Adrian Salbucci and commend his website to you. And you can find it at asalbucci.com.ar. And the easiest way to get the English version of that website is to go to asalbucci.com.ar and click on the American flag on the top corner on the top bar, and it will give you the English version of his website. He's also just recently released a book, "The Coming World Government: Colon, Tragedy and Hope?" Question uh, mark. His first book in English, and it is currently available for purchase from his website. And I have purchased it myself, and do recommend it. It is a very interesting read. So without further ado, let's get straight into my conversation with Adrian Salbucci. And we're going to start by listening to a short clip in which he just goes over the context and history of Argentina and why it is an interesting place to be looking at when we're talking about the economic new world order. And I'll just put in the caveat that there was some type of interference on the line uh, during this conversation, a slight jingling noise. Uh, he is perfectly uh, hearable. I mean, he, you can hear everything he's saying, but unfortunately there is a little bit of a jingling noise. I'm sure I hope that my audience will forgive that noise because it is an extremely interesting interview. So let's get straight into the interview with Adrian Salbucci. Now, basically, I think there are just two or three salient points to very quickly mention about the 20th century. Uh, repeatedly, for different reasons, which would be too complex to explain, Argentina has always been at loggerheads with the, the empire of the moment. So, for example, during the First World War, when practically all the countries in South America declared war uh, on the side of the Allies and against the central powers, Germany, Austria, Hungary, and, and Turkey, 
we were completely uh, neutral. So that there we started having a, a point against us, so to speak, from the powers that be. When the, the League of Nations was formed, since we did the, the president of Argentina at that time thought that it was not a fair stance, we did not become a member. Then during the Second World War, not only did we not declare war against Germany, Italy, and Japan, but if anything, we had a, a neutrality which was more favorable to the Axis powers than it was to the Allies. So again, we became a country that was not trusted by the powers that be. And we did that not because we were uh, pro-communist at all. If anything, the government of Juan Perón, which was in power from 1946 to 1955 and really started creating a very strong Argentina, wanted to have nothing to do either with the Soviet Union or with Britain and the United States. We wanted to take a completely independent stance. He was finally bombed out of power by local military in Argentina that uh, were al uh, aligned, at least, I'm not going to say allied, but aligned to the global power elite at the time after the Second World War. And from then onwards, Argentina has just gone down and down and down. We used to have the, the strongest middle class in, the, um, in, in South America and Latin America, and now we are really down in the dumps. And basically, and this is one of the points I raise in my book, I think that we became sort of a testing ground in, on a small scale <clears throat> of things that are starting to happen now on a global scale. As I said at the beginning of, of, of the interview, I'm 58 years old and in my adult life I have lived through three economic collapses. In 1975, then in 1989 we, we had hyperinflation which was practically one of the only four or five cases of hyperinflation in the history of the world. And then in 2001-2002 we had a full financial and banking meltdown. So, uh, you know, w w these things, we've, we've actually uh, suffered them in our, in, in our own flesh and blood. And uh, from what I see later happening, I think that they, are, they were like testing grounds for things that are now starting to happen on a global basis. So when I saw what happened in September 2008 in, in America and in Europe, in a way I say, hey, this sounds very familiar. And you start, when you start to understand how a, how a mechanism works, you start to see that there's a model behind it and that things are not haphazard. Things don't just happen because somebody makes a big mistake or something. In a way, they, they uh, represent the model. And when you understand the model of something, you can start predicting how, or forecasting at least, how it will act out as time goes by. Well, I think that's quite right, and I think that's a message that will resonate with my listeners uh, especially. So certainly um, I, I'd be interested to hear more about the, the political situation in Argentina, because I think everyone is at least passingly familiar with Perón, but um, perhaps not so familiar with, with recent years and the, the judicialists and, and the Kirchners and all of that, that. So maybe you could fill us in a little bit on the political context. Well, it, it, I'll make a very, very, uh, very, very brief summary. After Perón was ousted violently in 1955, I think the, the, the military of Argentina are practically the only case where the armed forces of a country bombs its own city. I mean, there's practically no other case of, in history of that. They were so totally treacherous and aligned with the global power elite. But anyway, from then onwards, we had some so-called democratic governments, and then we had military coups, and then another democratic government, and then another military coup. And the last coup that we had was when Perón came back for less than a year. He was very old in, in, in the 70s. And there was finally a military civilian coup in 1976. And that's when... 
the, the financial uh, system really took over this country because it dis disassembled, it destroyed, it deconstructed our industrial-based economy and it started imp imposing a, an artificially generated foreign, public foreign debt. That was in 1976. Then you might remember that General Galtieri decided to invade the Falkland Islands, the Malvinas Falkland Islands in 1982 against Britain. Well, that was probably such a ridiculous mistake that they really had to go like a wet dog with, it, with its tail between its, its, its legs. And in 1983, we had, and we've had it ever since, so-called democracy. Because although they call it democracy, it's not really democracy. And from then onwards, we've just had one bad president after another, after another, after another, until you get to the Kirchners, which are probably the worst we've had so far. But I'm sure they can think of something even worse for the future. And basically, I say, you, you figure, well, what, what's wrong with you Argentines? Are you all dumb? And I say, no. The problem is that what goes as democracy here is basically a system which is the favored system by the power, uh, the money power. In other words, they identify local people who are willing for various reasons, whether it be ignorance, treachery, fame, or ambition, to do the work of the global power elite with the plans they have for Argentina, especially its territory, to do it for them. And when they identify these people, they will finance their political campaigns, political party, uh, media support, and so forth. So we end up having literally the best democracy that money can buy, which I know is pretty much the case also in, in just about every other country in the Western world today, but it is particularly so uh, in Argentina, and the country has been weakened, uh, weakened uh, continually. We practically have no armed forces now. Our economy is very distorted by our foreign debt, and it, one of the conditions to be president of Argentina, the unwritten conditions, is that no president, no Congress here should ever investigate Argentina's foreign debt, because if they did, they would be able to see that it all goes back to the illegal military government that took over in 1976, and we could declare it odious debt, and not only ask for the bankers to give the money back to us that we've paid, but even ask for a, uh, an indemnity, because it was basically an illegal debt that should not have been generated in the first place. So that is basically how we get to today. And uh, one last comment, I think, which is worth saying. They, have so, they hold so much sway over the media that they have literally decultured entire generations. People are very unaware of how, what things are really all about. It's not the people's fault. It's the media who will just not report any alternative solutions, any alternative views. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's one of the many cases where you see psychological warfare at work and with a, a, a substantial amount of success. Adrian Salbucci of aselbucci.com.ar. And as much as all of that applies to the Argentinians and their situation, I'm sure it equally applies to people all around the globe who have become decultured by the media and conditioned not to care or think about these types of issues. But of course, you are here listening to the Corbett Report because you do care and you are interested in these issues. So let's start delving into them in some greater detail. I would, of course, wholeheartedly suggest that you go to CorbettReport.com to download that interview in its entirety as Adrian Salbucci and I go into much greater depth of analysis about the economic crises that have continued to unfold like a, like a generation-long nightmare since the 1976 military coup that overthrew the Perón government. And we will come back to that interview at the end of today's podcast for a little bit more from Mr. Salbucci. But at this point, let's start getting into some of the details. And we're going to start by examining that 1976 coup and the effect that it had on Argentina. 
And we're going to do so by turning to someone who was actually there and someone who my listeners will probably be familiar with already, and that is Michelle Chosodowski, the director of the Center for Research on Globalization at globalresearch.ca, and a previous guest on the Economics 101 series, as well as someone who is featured on my 2009 video archive DVD. And he has also been kind enough to record an interview with us on this topic of Argentina and the IMF, and a portion of that interview was made available as a YouTube video over the winter hiatus, so some of you might have seen that video. Today we're going to listen to a section from this interview with Michelle Chosodowski uh, that was not in that video, so you will be hearing some new material here. And he was, as I say, in Argentina during the coup in 1976. He was also in Chile during the military coup there in 1973. Of course, uh, famously, the one that Henry Kissinger uh, helped to bring about on September 11th, 1973 in Chile that overthrew the government there. So he has been in the eye of the maelstrom for, for quite a while and has seen this up close and personal and lived through it and was researching the uh, economic uh, implications of all of this at the time. So let's hear from Michel Chosodowski about this important period in Argentinian history that predates the IMF uh, involvement in, in Argentina specifically and in the region generally with their structural adjustment programs that really started to pick up pace in the 1980s. But as Michel Chosodowski points out in this interview, the Argentinian and the Chilean situations in the early 19th and mid-1970s was really kind of a testing ground where these policies were were first prototyped and tried out and unfortunately became institutionalized in the 1980s through the structural adjustment policies, which we talked about a little bit in the Sunday update of today's episode. And as a side note, you'll notice that the documentation for Sunday update is not in the documentation of this episode, as I don't feel like duplicating all of that uh, documentation, but the documentation for each episode of Sunday update is on the video itself on the YouTube channel. So please go to the YouTube video in order to actually get the documentation, which not enough people do, I think. It seems to be a hidden gem that most people don't realize is there. Again, click on the more info button on underneath the uh, video itself and you'll get the documentation with links to all of the information. And you'll you'll be able to find a, a document there called The Globalizer Who Came In From The Cold from Greg Palast. Uh, it was an article written in 2001 in which he debriefed Joseph Stiglitz after he left as chief economist of the World Bank and he blew the whistle on the IMF riots and the structural adjustment policies that were being specifically um, put into place in order to bankrupt company, countries in order that foreign multinationals could come in and buy up the infrastructure of the economy at pennies on the dollar, something which very, very much took place in Argentina during the 90s and early 2000s and was part of the whole mess that uh, Argentina finds itself in now. And that was really enabled, as, uh, as Mr. Salbucci just pointed out in that clip, by the 1976 coup, which brought in a government which racked up debts in the name of the people, which had nothing to do with the people. At any rate, let's listen to Michel Chosodowski explaining about the 1976 military coup in Argentina. Uh, I, I, uh, I arrived in, in um, I actually arrived uh, in uh, Córdoba, which is the second largest city in, in Argentina. I was teaching at the university a couple of months after the coup. In fact, I, I arrived in the country three weeks after the coup and then started teaching there and this was a period of tremendous turmoil. Uh, the whole city was militarized uh, and, and then you, you, you saw the impacts of these deadly macroeconomic reforms. Uh, 
I suspected that what was going to happen in, in uh, Argentina would be, a, would be a replicate of what happened in Chile. And in fact, it, it had very much the same logic. There was a military government. Um, the, the only member of the cabinet who was a civilian was um, Martínez de Oz. Uh, this was in the cabinet of General Jorge Videla. Martínez de Oz was a very uh, prominent and powerful financier who had connections with Wall Street. And in fact, what happened essentially was that this package of, of, of measures was, was imposed uh, by Wall Street. The IMF was not involved at, at that period. We're talking about the 70s. Uh, and uh, uh, the impact uh, was, again, the hikes hikes in prices of consumer goods, uh, food, uh, fuel, and so on, uh, leading to a very dramatic collapse in real earnings. Uh, I estimated that uh, from, um, from the middle of, the, of, the, of 75 to the middle of 76, but particularly when, when the, the junta took control, uh, real wages collapsed by approximately 50%. They were, they were at a relatively high level before the coup because uh, the Peronista labor movement was, uh, was very active in, in uh, ensuring that, that real wages wouldn't be actually uh, eroded by, by uh, creeping inflation. But then when the coup arrived, uh, what we saw was... Uh, uh, was um, the, first of all, the derogation of labor rights, and then very dramatic increases in, in consumer prices, which, which happened virtually overnight uh, and, uh, and uh, led to a situation of total recession. Uh, people couldn't go out in the evening because they had no money to spend, um, apart from the fact that, that security was always a problem. There was, there was shooting in, at, at night. And... Um, I, um, I was at the university uh, trying to collect um, data on prices. I actually went, I went to, the, to the main library of the university, which was guarded by the U.S. Air Force. I'm sorry, not by the U.S. Air Force. It was slip of the tongue. It was the Argentinian Air Force. The Argentinian Air Force had, had nominated a, a, a rector of the university who happened to be a colonel. So so that we, the whole university was taken over by the, by the Air Force and um, I, I arrived at the library and then I went to, to start consulting uh, piles and piles of, of uh, official statistics, newspaper reports and, um, and there I was in the, in the stalls of the, of the library uh, of, the, of the university. It's one of the oldest uh, universities in, 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 the, in, in Latin America and um, uh, it was winter, and then um, and it was unheated because they didn't have any money for fuel. And then uh, at five o'clock, I, I really had to stop, stop because there was no more there was no more light because they, they they they'd cut electricity. So that was the atmosphere in which I was doing this research. And I I recalled my my earlier. Uh, experience in Chile that when the when the junta uh, published the inflation statistics for the month of October, 
uh, in Chile, they were all of the order of 87%, 83 or 87% in, in, in a single month when they, they implemented the shock treatment. But I suspected that they were much higher. So I went to considerable trouble to start collecting prices, comparing them, collecting prices directly in, in, the, in the supermarkets and so on. And I came up in Chile with, uh, with estimates uh, which uh, uh, indicated that the military junta had manipulated the consumer price index. It wasn't of the order of, of 80%. Uh, it wasn't of the order of 80%. It was of the order of something, of something uh, if I recall correctly, 150 to 160%. So that, that meant that any kind of wage adjustments would be based on, uh, if you're talking about indexation, it would be based on fake uh, consumer price prices, and that is exactly what happened in Chile. That from the military coup in '73, they they used fake indices of the consumer price index to adjust the wages. Now I suspected that that was going to happen as well in Argentina, and I started building my own index of of the of prices, and then after a lot of work two or three weeks of, of going through statistics, I realized that, in fact, the Argentinian military junta had not manipulated the consumer price index, despite the fact that the, the collapse was significant. But in any event, organized labor had already been squashed, and uh, whether they had manipulated the consumer price index or not, they were, they were, uh, they were using um, economic policy to impoverish uh, uh, large sectors of the Argentinian population, which was what, what was happening. And this was, the, this was the dress rehearsal. These two experiences of the, of the 1970s, the coup in Chile uh, with the Chicago boys and uh, the Argentinian military coup in 76 with, uh, with uh, Finance Minister Martinez Eos, this was the dress rehearsal for all subsequent uh, structural adjustment programs which then emerged in the 1980s and, and were then far more cohesive uh, uh, in terms of their institutional uh, uh, support from the, of course, from the International Monetary Fund, um, they, they, become, they became more institutionalized, they gained in legitimacy, they were applied in, in, in numerous countries, and the history of Argentina uh, over the over a span of, of uh, 30 years, I think is very important because the the actual uh, roots of these um, deadly macroeconomic reforms, which were applied by successive um, governments in Argentina, that started with the coup in 1976, and in March 1976. Uh, and these were measures which had been imposed on Wall Street. Um, and in this regard, the finance minister, Martinez de Oz, played a very important historical role in, in setting the stage for uh, a whole historical process which happened uh, subsequently. Michel Shosodowski of globalresearch.ca
Now, democracy supposedly returned to Argentina in 1983, and to one extent or another, there has been a semblance of democracy in Argentina, although I think people who have studied Argentinian politics over the last few decades will recognize that it is a mafiocracy in most cases and does not in any way resemble the populist government of Perón, despite the fact they like to call themselves neo-peronistas in order to cash, uh, cash in on the a uh, very widespread popularity of Perón and the, his legacy. Now, we are going to skip over a lot of the meat and potatoes of today's episode, Argentina and the IMF, and we're going to skip over a large section of the, the period of history in which uh, the IMF was swooping in with their you know, carefully crafted structural adjustment policies that left Argentina just destitute. And uh, there's simply too much to go over, so I'm going to instead direct you to sources which I truly wholeheartedly hope you will check out because they provide excellent information about this topic and one of them is a youtube video that is available in 12 parts on the channel of someone called world issues 2000 and it goes by the english title argentina's economic collapse and unfortunately we can't play any of that video because it is in spanish with english subtitles so the audio does not translate very well but at any rate it is an excellent, excellent documentary that really breaks down the utter deprivation of the Argentinian economy in the 80s, 90s, and up to today, and and really shows exactly how this entire crisis unfolded. So I cannot recommend it highly enough. It goes by a Spanish title, of course, that I won't attempt to butcher, but I will, of course, put a link in the documentation for today's episode so you can find it for yourself. It's by an Argentinian filmmaker and politician named Fernando Solanas, who went into self-imposed exile from Argentina after the 1976 coup and returned when democracy returned in 1983. And it is, as I say, a very, very powerful documentary, so I hope you will go and watch that and find out more about, or to see for yourself exactly what type of economic hardships the Argentinians have gone through in the name of this odious debt that was racked up by an illegitimate government and then continued by the mafiocracy who decided to pay it back through loans and of course the loans end up gutting the country and the people at the very top siphon off what little goes to the people and uh, and it's a really disgusting and heartbreaking situation and uh, that documentary gives a great overview of it but let's uh, let's turn to another source that I would like to direct my listeners to and this is a, a pretty good overview article it's now nine years old it was in dollar and cents magazine from the March April 2002 edition and it's an article by Arthur McEwen by the title Economic Debacle in Argentina, the IMF Strikes Again, shortly after the, the of course, famous uh, d- destruction of the Argentinian currency in 2001. And this article is uh, full of very interesting information, and I can't recommend it highly enough, but we only have time to read a little bit. So let me read a bit of this article to you. Quote, Argentina's current problems are all the more severe because in the early 1990s, in the name of fighting inflation, the government created a currency board. The board was charged with regulating the current country's currency so that the Argentine peso would exchange one-to-one with the U.S. dollar. To assure this fixed exchange rate, the board kept a supply of dollars on reserve and could not expand the supply of pesos without an equivalent increase in the dollars that it held. The currency board system appeared attractive because of absurd rates of inflation in the 1980s, with price increases up to 200% a month. By restricting the growth of the money supply, the system brought inflation rates to heel. Although the currency board system had virtually eliminated inflation in Argentina by the mid-1990s, it had also eliminated flexibility in monetary policy. 
When the current recession began to develop in the late 1990s, the government could not stimulate economic activity by expanding the monetary supply. Worse yet, as the, ec as the economy continued to spiral downwards, the inflow of dollars slowed, forcing the currency board to restrict the country's money supply even further. And still worse, in the late 1990s, the US dollar appreciated against other currencies, which meant, because of the one-to-one -one rule, that the peso also increased in value. As a result, the price of Argentine exports rose, further weakening world demand for Argentina's goods. As Argentina entered into the lasting downturn of the period since 1998, the IMF continued unwavering in its financial support. The IMF provided small loans, such as $3 billion in early 1998, when the country's economic difficulties began to appear. As the crisis deepened, the IMF increased its support, supplying a loan of $13.7 billion and arranging $26 billion more from other sources at the end of 2000. As conditions worsened further in 2001, the IMF pledged another $8 billion. However, the IMF coupled its largesse with the condition that the Argentine government maintain its severe mon monetary policy and continue to tighten its fiscal policy by eliminating its budget deficit. The IMF considers deficit reduction to be the key to macroeconomic stability and, in turn, the key to economic growth. The Argentine government undertook deficit reduction with a vengeance. With the economy in a nosedive and tax revenues plummeting, the only way to balance the budget was to drastically cut government spending. In early July 2001, just before making a major government bond offering, Argentine officials announced budget cuts totaling $1.6 billion, about 3% of the federal budget, which they hoped would reassure investors and allow interest rates to fall. Apparently, however, investors saw the cuts as another sign of worsening crisis, and the bonds could only be sold at high interest rates, 14% as compared to 9% on similar bonds sold just a few weeks before the announcement of budget cuts. By December, the effort to balance the budget required cuts that were far more severe. The government announced a drastic reduction of $9.2 billion in spending, or about 18% of its entire budget. With these cutbacks, the government both eviscerated social programs and reduced overall demand. In mid-December, the government announced that it would cut the salaries of public employees by 20% and reduce pension payments. At the same time, as the worsening crisis raised fears that Argentina would abandon the currency board system and devalue the peso, the government moved to prevent people from trading their pesos for dollars by limiting bank withdrawals. These steps were the final straws, and in the week before Christmas, all hell broke loose. End quote. Now, if all of that sounds vaguely familiar, that's because that's exactly what is now being proposed in the fallout from the economic collapse of the European Union. And the austerity word, of course, is being employed to get people to tighten their belts. And for more on that, I would suggest that you might check out my The Meaning of Austerity video on YouTube. But uh, if all of that sounds familiar, again, that's because it's exactly what is now being proposed and what is right around the corner for America and the other economies, which are really just floating along on the back of the quantitative easing funny money that's being injected into the system to try to keep the system moving sideways until the inevitable collapse point. And uh, again, this Argentinian situation is extremely interesting and extremely instructive in a number of ways. And it was my intention for this episode when I first conceived of it for this to be a real sign of what can be done to counteract and overcome these obstacles. But of course, it's not so easy to do that because the Argentinians themselves are still in the quagmire of this odious debt that has been saddled on them. And I will, of course, include a link to odious debt itself and an interesting article about the concept because it is a very interesting concept that this debt is not 
payable because it is not actually the Argentinian people's. It was racked up under a military dictatorship, which the people had absolutely no part in and no say in. So why on earth are they being asked to pay for these debts? Well, because they've gone along with it, or not them, but the mafiocracy at the top has uh, basically sold them into slavery for this. And uh, again, that's an important concept to understand, that the governments are agreeing to pay these debts because the people at the top of the governments who are in the positions to make those decisions are the people who will benefit when the IMF kicks out the loans and a little bit might trickle down to the people. But of course, the, the people at the very top will keep most of it for themselves and it will be siphoned off to them and their friends as the international financiers work their wonders and become ever richer as the people become ever poorer. Well, another way in which the Argentinian situation might be seen as a way uh, that might offer a way forward would be from what we looked at in an earlier episode of this podcast, the idea that there was a scrip system uh, that was going on in Argentina after the collapse of the peso in the early part of the last decade. And again, I would refer you to our recent episode on colonial scrip in order to, for you to, to hear more about that and to find the links to documentation on that. But again, that was a temporary system that worked well in the immediate aftermath of the chaos of the collapse, but was not uh, obviously a system which was kept on as a transition into a new system. And we could look at the idea of political protest, and uh, some people have posited the Kirchners of Argentina or the De Silvas of Brazil or other people in Latin America as examples of how to stand up to the IMF and kick the bums out and get the company, country moving on the right track. But as uh, as uh, Salbucci points out in his in, in the interview we conducted with him, and as Chosodovsky points out in the interview we conducted with him, people like Kirchner and De Silva and others are uh, political red herrings. They are on the left side of the spectrum and appear to be for the people against the big banksters, but really are just a part of the neoliberal system, which is implementing these painful austerity measures all around the world. So uh, it's at least Salbucci's contention and uh, Chosodovsky's contention that these people are part of the very mafiocracy and part of the problem, and that rhetoric about kicking out the IMF is only that. So again, uh, it's not quite clear that there is a clear political example to be found in these situations. So the question once again is, how do the people get out of these situations? So unfortunately, we're running out of time, so I'm going to have to get straight to it. Well, let's listen to the uh, Argentinian himself, Mr. Salbucci, talking about his idea for not a system that exists right now or a system that has been implemented in Argentina, but something that he would like to see come about. And I think it is a step in the right direction, although, of course, we can talk about the specifics of it, but I think it is at least the right spirit and the right idea. And that is his idea for a second Argentinian republic. But, of course, I think this uh, concept could be equally applied elsewhere in the world, like in America, or even places that aren't formally a republic, like my home country of Canada, where this idea could still be transferred and the specifics would have to be worked out for each country, but it is a concept that could be worked with. So let's go straight to Mr. Salbucci talking about his concept of the Second Argentinian Republic and what it entails. Well, basically, when, 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 you, when you look at, at things that have happened to us, <clears throat> and you look, for example, at the model behind the collapse in 2002, 2001, 2002, which is surprisingly similar to the model of 2008 in America and elsewhere, whereby you, 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 you had a whole system collapsing and so forth, that you start to understand how it works, how the fractional banking system works, how psychological warfare works. We could say a whole lot of things about that. <clears throat> we basically figure it's, it's just a 
threefold way of thinking based on common sense. If you understand how the global power structures work, and you understand why they want us all to think and act in one way, and not to think and act in another way. For example, they don't want us to define money in any way different than what the Federal Reserve Bank or the Central Bank of Argentina or the Central European Bank does. When you understand why they want us to do certain things, well, then common sense tells you to do exactly the opposite. And exactly the opposite is how Second Republic arises in, into, well, we, we actually started building the whole thing in 2002 and 2003, which is, there are five key pillars which, is, which imply doing exactly the opposite of what the global power elite wants us to do. Pillar number one, they don't want any of us to have a strong sovereign nation state because the purpose of a, of a strong sovereign nation state is twofold. To promote the common good within the country and to defend the national interest against all sorts of threats and problems that may come from, uh, from abroad or even from inside. <clears throat> so pillar number one, let us all restore the sovereign nation state. Pillar number two, they don't want us having sovereign currency which is not interest-based. They want us to do everything with private money from the bankers, which is based on fractional lending and which carries enormous interest with it. That's why they limit the amount of public money, which is non-interest-bearing, the dollar bills and the pesos we might have in our pockets. They've done that traditionally. And they want us to, 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 to define money the way they want it. So second pillar, let us restore sovereign currency in each country or at least in every region. The third pillar, they talked us into thinking that Everything you want to do, whether it is as an individual, as an organization or corporation, or even as a country, you have to do indebting yourself with debt, massive amounts of debt. So now we have a planet where individuals, corporations, organizations, and entire nations are indebted. And the key question is, indebted to whom? So the third pillar is let us reject the debt-based system. Let us do what every honest housewife will do. If $1,000 comes in, I shouldn't be spending more than $1,000 in my expenses. And if I do it one month, it's because I've already had a reserve from the previous month. But you can't just say, oh, my, you know, we have $1,000 income and I just keep lovelyly spending two, three, four thousand $4,000 a month because you're going to collapse or the bankers are going to end up owning you. So third pillar, reject the debt-based system. Fourth pillar. Let us release our republican institutions. Neither, neither the Constitution of America or the Constitution of Argentina has the word democracy once in its wording. Let us recover, our, uh, release our, our uh, republican institutions from their dependency, even slavery, upon money. Let's go back to a system where any citizen can become uh, a government officer or whatever without needing to have hundreds of millions of dollars from bankers and corporations and wealthy people to finance his, his campaign, to finance his political party, and so forth. And the fifth uh, pillar, last but not least, is they have inverted and taken away all our values. They've really put our nations, from the point of view of values and, and, and morals and ethics, exactly heads downwards. Let's Put things back right up again. Let's put our values where they belong, our feet firmly on the ground, our minds and heads looking towards the heavens, and let's put our values back in place. And that I describe as something very similar. Finance, the world of finance, which is the, because I don't want to get out of, you know, delve away from, from, from the political, the world of finance should always be subordinated 
to the real economy. The real economy should always be serving a political plan which is executed with the idea of preserving the, com the, the common good and defending the national interest. The, po the, pol the political should always respect local culture. And local culture, I personally believe, should always have an inkling or an intuition for the transcendental. Call it God, call it whatever you want to call it. What's wrong with the present-day world order? It's what I just said exactly the other way around. Finance destroys the economy. The economy pays uh, kickbacks to all politicians. Politicians destroy culture. And culture is so totally destroyed that it has no need, no intuition for the transcendental. So it's just those five pillars that I think that any country, certainly Argentina, if you implement them correctly, and you uh, enlighten the population and public opinion should be able to get out of this malaise in, in, in a very short time. For those who are interested more in Mr. Salbucci's work and especially his idea of the Second Argentinian Republic, that is an idea that he's fleshed out in numerous YouTube videos, so I would invite you to check out his YouTube channel, a link to which I will, of course, provide in the documentation section for today's episode. And he has also helped to flesh out this idea in his uh, first English book, uh, the coming world government, tragedy and hope, question mark. So I would, uh, again, exhort people to go and buy that and support his work if you find it interesting and informative. And at any rate, we can disagree about specifics, but I think in general, the idea is a good one. We do need to take a, a good look at what the system is and to overturn those parts of that system which are not working in our favor. And unfortunately, we've reached a point in history where it seems the entire game is turned upside down and we are truly playing from a position of complete disadvantage. So it is in our interests to start thinking about what type of system we want to implement. And again, unfortunately, we simply do not have the time, space, energy, resources, or intellect here to provide all the answers for you. And all I can do is exhort you to begin your own research into these subjects. And I trust that when you do, you will come to the conclusion, as I have, that the IMF structural adjustment programs are certainly not what we need. Europe doesn't need it. And when America collapses, it will not need the IMF to bail it out, if such a thing would even be possible. What we need to be thinking about is fundamental reforms, monetary reforms, social reforms, media reforms, all sorts of reforms, governmental reforms that will truly bring about a system in which we can thrive once again. Because if we have learned anything from history, it's that there are periods of history when the entire system can be completely overturned and a completely new system can come along that will either liberate humanity and provide such a flowering and outgrowth of potential that it, it would stagger the imagination to think about, like the Renaissance, or conversely, these periods of destabilization can lead to further restrictions on humanity, and we can be plunged into a new dark ages. The choice is ours, but time is running out, and we have to make the choice quickly and from an informed perspective. So I invite you to begin your research by taking a look at the documentation for today's episode, and I trust together we will start laying the foundations for the future system that we all want to see. That's it for this week. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you very much for joining me and asking you to join me again for the next episode of The Corbett Report, The Coming Anastrophe. But I still need your love after all that I've done. You won't believe me. All you will see is a girl you once knew, although she's dressed up 
to the nines at sixes and sevens with you. I had to let it happen. I had to change. Couldn't stay all my life down at heel. Looking out of the window, staying out of the sun. So I chose freedom. Running around, trying everything new, but nothing impressed me at all. I never expected it to. Don't cry for me, Argentina.